This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. This is a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors focusing on how to make good ideas great and great ideas scale. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the voltage effect? Why do some ideas fail while others change the world? What are the five hurdles one must clear to ensure the vitality of an idea? And why should policymakers move from evidence-based policy to policy-based evidence? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Professor John A. List, author of The Voltage Effect and an economist at the University of Chicago. Welcome to the show, John. It's great to have you. Michael, thanks so much for having me. So, John, what is scalability and why is it such an important concept to grasp today? Yeah, absolutely. So I want you to think about scalability as I do original research in, say, the Petri dish or in a community, and I want to know, will the impacts that I find in the Petri dish, if I scale the program up, and what I mean by scale up is I go to multiple cities or a very, very big setting, will I receive the exact same impact from my program that I found I was receiving in the Petri dish? That's the way I think about scalability. Now, ideas with good scalability end up having the same impact or even more, and ideas that don't have such good scalability will end up having what I call voltage drops. So it looked great in the Petri dish, but it wasn't so great when we scaled it up. I was wondering, you know, you point out that all too often the promising ideas collapse at scale and that these cases are all examples, as you just said, of voltage drop. What do you mean by that term? And to what extent, John, is the title of your book, The Voltage Effect, about the science of scaling? Sure. I think that's a great question, Michael. So the way I think about the book, The Voltage Effect, it's a description of what happens to the impact of our ideas when we go from the small to the large. and You're exactly right that in many cases, there are voltage drops. And what that means is, look great in the Petri dish, not so great when we scale it up. But occasionally, there are ideas where you have voltage gains. And what that means is, it looked good in the Petri dish, but it was even better when we scaled it. Now, I became interested in this about 10 years ago. And I started to look into this notion of scaling. And I looked for science. And what I mean by that is I looked for what is the, our scientific understanding of scaling? And what I basically found was a lot of art. 
And what I mean by art is in the business world, it's along the lines of move fast and break things or fake it till you make it. Now, this is art because there is literally no data behind it. And in many cases, it's faulty reasoning. So I began a research agenda writing academic papers wherein I essentially attempted to add the economic science to scaling. And it's what I call the science of using science. You know, your, your book, John, does a wonderful job of introducing the voltage effect concept using vignettes and, and real-life illustrations. You know, to that end, I'd like for you to relay, if you could, the story of Greta and Mason and what it teaches us about scalability. Sure, sure. I love that. You know, Michael, I have never been uh, asked that question. So um, thank you so much for asking that question. So, so first of all, it's important that the listener understands that uh, the names Greta and Mason are made up. In fact, they happen to be my daughter and my son. So, so let's let's be clear that uh, um, the, these are real people, but mythical characters in the story. But nevertheless, this really happened, and it's happened to me several times. So, as the story goes, you have a, a superintendent of a school district, and you have a school board member, and they are both very, very enthusiastic about adding science to their curriculum or their educational system. And they end up reading an academic paper, and they read about an idea that looks great. So what they do is they bring it back to the school board and they convince the school board that their school district should actually do it. And the results come back after a year and program doesn't work at all. And now they have to eat crow where they started on the, on the right direction. They wanted to use science and they wanted to be informed decision makers Where they failed was they failed to understand that you need to pass a few hurdles before you can be confident that anything you read in an academic journal or the newspaper or even do yourself to be very confident that it will actually scale with impact. It actually needs to cross a few hurdles. So, John, you point out that certain ideas are predictably scalable while others are predictably unscalable, and that scalability is a fragile concept. What are the five hurdles one has to overcome in order to have a scalable idea? Sure, sure. So it it all starts with, does your idea have voltage? And what I mean by that is, is there really an effect of your program? and This goes down the path of identifying whether your idea is a false positive. And the way I want you to think about false positive is you take a COVID test and sometimes it comes back and tells you you're COVID positive, but that might be a false positive. So that's what we're talking about in the first vital sign is, you know, take care to make sure that your idea is not a false positive. Uh, Vital sign number two is understand your audience. 
And what I mean by that is understand which types of people your program works for, you know, who it works for. And in many cases in this vital sign, we exaggerate or overestimate how many people our idea will actually help because we make systematic errors in how we gather evidence early on in our process of trying to learn about our idea. So vital sign number two is know your audience. Vital sign number three, I, I title this part of the book, um, is it the chef or is it the ingredients? And the, the idea is make sure that when you generate the very first evidence about the efficacy of your idea, make sure that there aren't unique situational elements that are causing it to work in the Petri dish. But when you try to scale it up, those unique features are no longer present. And in those cases, you will have a dramatic voltage drop because the elements that made it work in the Petri dish in the small were just not available in the large. So that's vital sign number three is understand the unique elements in which you're gathering your data early on. Vital sign number four is spillovers. And this was a fun chapter to write because spillovers are, are multidimensional. And I go all the way back to the 1960s when Ralph Nader talked about traffic fatalities. And he talked about how dangerous our automobiles were when we're out driving on the highway and killing each other. In that case, they mandated seatbelts. The federal government did in 1968. And some economists came along, one in particular named Stan Peltzman comes along and finds that new seatbelt mandate actually had no effect on traffic fatalities. And it was simply because people who were wearing seatbelts drove more aggressively when they had the seatbelt on. So that, that's one kind of spillover. And I talk about three other major kinds of spillovers. And what this chapter really is about is to understand that when you have an idea, there will naturally be spillovers, some of them good, some bad, and you need to understand those before you scale. Now, vital sign number five is what I call the supply side of scaling. And this is simply to look at whether your idea has economies of scale or whether it has diseconomies of scale. And that will importantly affect whether you have a voltage drop. Because remember, in government policymaking or in the business world, we're always about benefits and costs. We do benefit cost analysis. So even if the benefit profile doesn't drop at scale, you can still have a voltage drop if the supply side ends up failing you, if you have diseconomies of scale. Wonderful. You know, John, I want to delve a little bit deeper into each one. And let's start with the false positives. And perhaps maybe through illustration, which are book does a wonderful job with vignettes, as I said, and anecdotes. But why did the drug abuse resistance education or DARE become such a disaster? And how is it a test textbook example of the, the first pitfall everyone hoping to scale an idea or enterprise must avoid? The chapter was a bit of 
good and bad for me because the chapter talks about Nancy Reagan and how in the mid 80s, she decided to stake claim to the D.A.R.E. program, which was essentially a social inoculation program based on information. You know, the listeners might remember this. And this became a very popular mantra back in the mid 80s. In fact, we spent millions and millions of dollars on this program to send officials to high schools. And in fact, I was in high school in the mid 80s and a local official came in and they gave us the information campaign of the D.A.R.E. program, just say no. They're related. They're not exactly the same program, but they're related. And I can still remember looking at my teacher. And I looked at my teacher and said, you know, I don't use drugs, but I have a lot of friends who do. And there is no way this program will work. And in fact, after hearing this, I might even dabble in drugs because of this program. <laughs> the, the data set they had was a pretty robust data set with about 1,777 high school students from Honolulu, Hawaii. And I've gone back and looked at that experiment. It was well done. The data are clean. So as an experimental um, professional, let's say, John List, I, I endorse the experiment itself. The problem is it was simply a false positive. And what I mean by that is the data were lying. The data said, look, there's voltage here. But remember, even in the best case scenario, 5% of the time, just, be, just the way we set up our statistical analyses, 5% of the time, we will have a false positive in the best world. And that's what we had here. We didn't take the time to replicate it in Honolulu or try it in LA or try it in Denver, try it in a few other markets before you blow it up. And it turned out to be a massive mistake. And we just wasted a ton of people hours and millions of dollars chasing something that never had voltage. You know, John, there are several concepts in your book that I'd like to explore that could help us better understand the best way to scale. Would you tell us more about such, such terms as confirmation bias, the bandwagon effect, and the winner's curse? Why are these important concepts to understand and know? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a that's a good question, Michael. So when I let's let's start with confirmation bias. So first of all, it's important to understand what is confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is a bias that psychologists have explored for decades. And it essentially goes as follows. If I have a belief about a program, like let's say I start an early childhood program for three, four, and five-year-olds down in Chicago Heights. And let's say that I have a strong intuition that the program will work. And what I mean by that is it will help young kids learn both cognitive and non-cognitive skills. Confirmation bias means as I generate information, the information that is in favor of the program I will say, see, look, 
That's really good data. That's really good information. But when data begin to come in that make the program look suspect or make the program look like it doesn't have the effects that I think it should have, I start to say, well, you know, there are probably errors in the data or the data aren't real or they don't tell the truth. This is a, a, a typical bias that humans have that when we see data that we like and conform to how we want them to look, we think that they're credible. And when data come in that don't conform to our expectations, we kind of brush them off as, as not being valuable or, or in, they shouldn't be influential. In this type of bias now, once we have it, it leads to many, many more false positives because we end up looking at data in a very different and non-objective way than we actually should. So simple human bias leads us down the path of having many, many more false positives. And it's similar with, with bandwagon effects. So bandwagon is, you know, once you have a result and a few people say, yes, that's good, everyone else tends to jump on board too without being critical. And this is important because in any organization, we always want at least one devil's advocate. We want one person to say, no, let's hold on a second. Let's make sure we look at this scientifically and objectively and make sure that this indeed has voltage. And that's the bandwagon effect tends to stop that from happening. Now, finally, the winner's curse. So the winner's curse is kind of an interesting concept that comes up in auction theory. So when people think about auctions for, say, uh, a tract of land that the government might auction off to private companies so they can drill for oil. This, this is a typical uh, type of lease situation that the government does every day. So what they essentially do is they announce we will be auctioning off the right to drill for oil or whatever, natural gas, whatever, on attractive land. And everybody should do their studies and then come in and, and place a bid in an auction. The problem that comes in is that the winning bid in these types of cases is probably one where the person just bid too much. And that's what it means by winner's curse. You've won the auction but you're cursed because you're going to lose money because your experts estimated that there was much more oil in that track than all the other estimates were. And if all the other experts are good experts too, that means that you've probably overestimated how much oil is there. And that's called the winner's curse. And that ends up playing a role in false positives as well. What other hurdles must we clear to ensure the vitality of an idea? I'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org 
to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center report responding to global health crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors focusing on how to make good ideas great and great ideas scale. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Professor John A. List, author of The Voltage Effect. I'd like to transition to the the next uh, hurdle, and that is the importance of knowing your audience. Why is that so important when you're trying to scale an idea? And what are some of the key pitfalls from overestimating how big a slice of the pie your idea can capture? Yeah, exactly. So I like to think about one of my favorite burger joints, McDonald's. And I like to think about what happened to them in the 1990s. And you might remember they introduced a new sandwich called the Arch Deluxe. And the CEO of McDonald's staked his reputation and his job on the line when they introduced this new sandwich called the Arch Deluxe. So when you look back at that moment, what you find is, well, where was there evidence behind the motive to introduce this new sandwich? And here's what they did. They did a bunch of focus groups. And this is typical of a firm in many governments. You go out and you survey people And that gives you an indication of, in this case, their preferences for a new hamburger called the Arch Deluxe. So they brought in a bunch of focus groups. And all of those focus groups loved the Arch Deluxe. They would ask questions like, would you buy this hamburger for $4? Yes. Would you buy it for five? Yes. Would you buy it for six? Yes. All the way up. Um, people loved it and they would pay a lot of money for it in the lab, in the surveys, in these focus groups. Now, you have to step back and ask yourself, first of all, is that group in the focus group, are they representative of the population at large who you will be selling those burgers into? Well, of course not. These people who agree to go into a focus group for McDonald's are either McDonald's lovers or they're burger lovers or both. Okay, so you have a representative problem. Now, the second problem here is that you have an incentive problem. And here's what I mean by that. So, Michael, think about the stock market. On the stock market, we can either buy shares of a company or we can buy options in a company. And the way options work, essentially, is I can say, look, I want to have the option to buy 100 Google shares in August of 2022 for $2,000 a share. And to have that option, I need to pay real money. 
Okay, that's an option. Think about what's happening in these focus groups. People come in and they can buy a free option. They can tell McDonald's, I love that burger. Of course I will pay $5, I'll pay $7 for it. It's cheap talk and it's hypothetical, but it's useful because they are buying a free option. When McDonald's introduces it, we all know that our lives are better when we have more options. So you're convincing McDonald's to introduce, if you like it, great. If you don't like it, you don't have to buy it. No problem at all. So you have to be really careful when you explore early on how many people like my product or in the governmental world, how many people are positively affected by my program. In many cases, it's set up just by the researcher concocting the sample or the focus group, the person not understanding that there are issues with that. And that in many cases leads to an exaggeration of the piece of the pie that your idea can actually capture. So, you know, I want to delve a little deeper, John, into the, for an idea to scale, you point out something I think is very important. Why is it critical for you to know the negotiables versus the non-negotiables and then figure out whether your non-negotiable ingredients are in fact scalable. Why is that so important? Exactly. I'm glad you touched on this, Michael, because to me, this is the biggest mistake that governments make today is that they are generating data to the wrong questions. Here's what I mean by that. If you want to change the world as a government, you have to change it at scale. What that means is you have to generate data in a manner that is consistent with what happens at scale. This is something that I call policy-based evidence. Okay, let me unpack all of that. So I lead off this chapter with an example that's titled, is it the chef? or is it the ingredients? So I look at a lot of restaurant data and there are a lot of restaurants that try to scale. And what I mean by that is they have one restaurant and they're killing it. And let's say that one restaurant is earning a million dollars in profits every year. So the entrepreneur says, well, why not have 50 of them? We can make $50 million a year. And they, they give it a go and they try to scale. They try to turn from one restaurant to say 50 restaurants or 25 restaurants, whatever. Invariably what happens is if the secret sauce was the chef, what I'm saying here is if the initial success of the first restaurant is because of the chef, that restaurant will never scale. And it's because unique humans don't scale. So the moral of this story is understand early on what are your negotiables? What are your non-negotiables? So if it's the chef, that means it's the chef is the non-negotiable. 
So that means I don't want to scale that up until I can make sure at scale, I can get the same kinds of chefs. As it turns out, when you're trying to emulate a unique human, it just doesn't work. And it's nearly impossible to teach it because they're just, that's why they're unique. Now, think about uh, my pre-K program that I started in Chicago Heights back in 2010. One of the non-negotiables there was the teacher. So I had to hire 30 teachers for my pre-K program in Chicago Heights. And what I found was, if you want to think about scaling then, hiring 30 teachers is a lot different than hiring 30,000 teachers around Chicago. <laughs> you can see why, right? It's easy to hire 30 good teachers, but it's nearly impossible to hire 30,000 good teachers. So that tells me before I scale my preschool, I have to make sure that I have a curriculum and I have a program that will work with the types of teachers that I can hire at scale. What you've just done is you've given us an answer to a question of if you use the best inputs in the Petri dish, does your idea work? That's what you've just answered. You haven't answered if I scale this idea and I have to take the warts and the constraints and all of the problems at scale and said, now does the idea work? We haven't answered that question, Michael. We, we have answered the wrong question with our research approach. And that's because of the manner in which we've set up the academy. The, the intellectual knowledge creation market is set up to do an efficacy test and to get the best publication and to get the headlines in the New York Times and then to leave. And, and then you forget to tell everyone, hey, by the way, that was an efficacy test. Don't expect it to work at scale because then nobody will listen to you if you say that. But that's the truth. You're coming up with a solution to the wrong question. And until we embrace the fact that we have to bring all of the warts, all of the constraints, all of the issues that we're going to face at scale, we need to bring those back to the Petri dish. And that's what I call policy-based evidence. That's a great point. You know, John, you, you mentioned something else that I thought was interesting since since we're talking about education, we're talking about policy-based evidence, and, and it's the concept of program or mission drift. You referenced the early Head Start program to illustrate the concept. Why was there considerable voltage drop when that program was scaled? Yeah, absolutely. So, Michael, you bring up a good point. One key component of this vital sign, which is understand the situation, is that in many cases, we lose fidelity. And what I mean by fidelity, I want you to think about, okay, in the, in the original research, I gave people a pink pill, but when we scaled it, I gave them a green pill. That's program drift. It's you're not giving the same treatment that you gave in the original design. This is also called program drift because in many cases, when you have, say, a home visiting program, you have people going to 
folks' homes and they work with parents of young kids and they teach them what are the best techniques to teach their children. Now, that might work early on, but when you try to scale that, what invariably happens is there's program drift in terms of as you hire more and more home visitors, the quality of the home visitor might get worse. This comes back to unique humans don't scale and make sure when you scale, you have the correct humans. That's fascinating. You know, John, you, you have another concept in the book, and I think it's related to it. And I just thought you would, before we get into spillover and cost, I want to talk about, could, could you give us a sense of what backward induction means? Yeah, absolutely. So the way I want you to think about backward induction is envision what your program will look like at scale. And you think about, okay, at scale, these are the types of people who we will be hiring. These are the local or state or federal regulations that might affect the rollout of our program. These are the types of people who will receive our program. Now I want you to envision that and then backward induct to the Petri dish and say, you know what? I want to emulate what the program looks like at scale in the Petri dish. So you use backward induction in order to make policy-based evidence. Great. That's excellent. So, you know, John, spillover. Why does it cause voltage drops and how do you measure it? Yes, this is um, so spillovers are, are really interesting just because they're so multidimensional and they can occur at the individual level. As I mentioned before, the case of the seatbelt laws in, in 1968, you can think about spillovers happening within a market. And, and what I mean by that is if I go back to my days at Uber as a chief economist, we would try a lot of different things to raise driver pay. So you might hear a lot of complaints that drivers on Uber and Lyft aren't paid enough. I agree with that. They should be paid more. They should receive uh, benefits. Absolutely. We tried. And we tried in various ways. So one example is we tried to change the rate card. And what that means is drivers are paid for the amount of time and the amount of distance that they take somebody in their vehicle from point A to point B. So an Uber driver is only paid when somebody is in their back seat and they're paid in time and distance. So what we did is we said, look, let's raise the amount of money that we pay them for both time and for distance. And this should raise their wages. Okay, so it does for a while, but then what happens is new drivers enter the market and existing drivers drive a little bit more because of the higher wages. And that completely undoes the wage effect. So you come to a new equilibrium whereby the new hourly wage is exactly the same as the old hourly wage. And this is a paper that John Horton and a few colleagues uh, wrote up. And it's just a brilliant paper because it shows that 
the economics of the problem, you always have to take care because there might be individual spillovers or there might be market-wide spillovers. And those spillovers are important to understand because when we roll out an idea, we wanna roll out ideas that have positive spillovers. And these are the ideas that are gonna have high voltage. So we should try to take account of those, but we should also take account of those cases where we expect there to be negative spillovers. And then we should try to adjust our idea or take account of these spillovers before we actually scale it up. That's a great point. You know, John, what are some of the cost problems inherent to scaling? Business people tend to start there for two reasons. One, they understand that as they grow, the very early consumers might be really, really interested in the product and they will pay a lot of money. But as you grow, you also have to take in customers who are willing to pay a little bit less and a little bit less money. And in those cases, that means to continue to make a lot of profit or enough profit, you want to be able to take care of the supply side and produce the good at a lower and lower cost. So that's one reason why business people care about this first and foremost. The second reason is it's a competitive advantage. And what I mean by that is if you get really, really big, the new person coming in or the entrant has to start from stage one. And it's very hard for them to compete because you're at a really, really low cost per unit. And that makes it very hard for them to compete with your prices. So that's kind of another reason why businesses, whether it's Musk or Bezos or Travis Kalanick or or whomever, they're interested first and foremost, what does the supply side look like? And then let's see if I can make a demand side. On the government side, it's altogether different. It's really interesting, Michael. On the government side, they start and pretty much stay with the benefit side. You know, they say, what does a benefit profile look like? Who does it help? What is the equity in terms of, you know, does it help one group and not another? These are important, no doubt. And you should always concern yourself with which groups are being helped. And the ones who aren't being helped, you should come up with solutions for them too. But the interesting aspect is most of the discussion on the government or the public side is on the benefit profile. And I think it's in part because, let's face it, the federal government is a monopoly and they don't face competition. So when you don't face competition and you face a world whereby you are essentially graded on the benefits that people are getting, and in, in fact, if you're a state senator, or a congressperson from New York, you want to bring in benefits for your constituents. Makes sense. You're focusing on the benefit side. And that's a really interesting disconnect that I learned in my research. But nonetheless, it's still, cost of course is still important. When I worked in the federal government, we did a lot of benefit cost analyses. But what we didn't do a lot of is try to forecast what the cost would look like at scale. And that was because, by and large, we didn't care as much in the government. Now, maybe they do it today, but I'm just saying back in 2003, we didn't focus on the forecasting of the cost. 
is the program scale. What are some ways to increase positive results at scale? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors focusing on how to make good ideas great and great ideas scale. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Professor John A. List, author of The Voltage Effect. So, John, uh, so I've overcome these hurdles. Now, what are some of the key ways we can maximize voltage again when scaling an idea? So that's good because, Michael, we are halfway through the book. <laughs> the, the listener might be thinking, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? Is this a, a Tolstoy-type novel? <laughs> In a way, it is, remember, because I say that all scalable ideas are alike, and each unscalable idea is unscalable in its own way. So I, I do have a little Anna Karenina in the book. The, the back half of the book is really... I think, a guide for both the curious reader. And what I mean by curious reader is somebody who wants to learn how simple economics can be understood and used for their own decision making. So that's a one group I'm trying to go after here. I'm trying to go after the truck driver. And I say truck driver because my grandfather, father, and brother we're all truck drivers. So I, I wrote the second half of the book in a way that I wanted to unlock the mysteries in economic journals and unlock the mysteries of all of the economies that people talk about in a way that people can use these lessons to make their lives better. Okay, so let's talk about the first chapter, which is on incentives. So what I've learned over the years is that when I start to talk to people about incentives, in the back of their minds, they say, okay, here comes the economist, and he's going to tell us about money, money, money. That's what economists care about. Well, Michael, today I'm here to talk about something that's not money, and that's incentives that scale. So let's think about Uber tipping, which I talk about in the book. So at Uber, my team helped roll out the tipping algorithm in the app. 
So a lot of listeners might not know this, but before the fall of 2017, you could not tip your driver through the app on Uber. And my team helped roll it out the summer of 2017. And we learned some really interesting facts about tipping. So one fact is only 1% of people tip on every trip. So Michael, you heard that right. Only 1% of people tip on every trip. Now, the opposite side of the coin, three out of five people never ever tip. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. Three out of five people never ever tip their Uber driver. Okay, those are facts about Uber tipping. Now, when I look at data from traditional yellow cabs, so these have become kind of extinct these days with Uber and Lyft, but um, still a lot of people take, especially around New York City where there's more supply constraints on rideshare, people take yellow cabs all the time. When you look at those data, 90 to 95% of riders tip. You can say, well, wait a second, are they different people? No, they're not different people. You can then say, well, what's the difference here? Remember the power of social norms, peer effects, and social pressure. These types of incentives are very important to think about when scaling. Now, the other types of incentives I talk about in this chapter are ways that you can frame financial incentives. So whereas social pressure and norms, et cetera, those are non-financial, as I mentioned, there is a way that we can do better with financial incentives. And that's something that I call the clawback in this chapter. You know, if you think about our teachers in public education, most people view it repugnant to attach, say, their pay to their performance, right? That's one area of our economy where pay for performance really hasn't grabbed on. And we ended up convincing around Chicago, the teachers union down in Chicago Heights to allow us to do some bonus experiments for teachers. And we did a simple thing. We, we said, look, there, there will be one group of teachers where we give a traditional bonus. And what I mean by that is I go to these teachers in September at the beginning of the school year, and I tell them, we're going to do a bonus program this year. And I'm going to give your kids, your students, an examination today. And then in June, I'm going to give them another examination. And your bonus will be determined by how much your kids improve between September and June. And then in June, I will give you your bonus. Okay, that's how we usually do bonuses. Now, another group of teachers, a totally different group, I go into them and I tell them, look, here's $4,000. And I tell them the rules. I'm gonna test your students today. I'm gonna test them again in June. And if they don't improve enough, 
I am going to claw back or take some of that $4,000 bonus. Now, if they kill it, I might give you even more than 4,000, but you better make sure to work hard so you don't lose that money. You know what happens? That group of teachers works a lot harder than the traditional bonus scheme. We did this program in China at Chinese manufacturing plant. We did it on farms in Wisconsin. We did it with bean sorters in Nepal. Many other people have done it too. Nearly every time it works. And that's just a way to, to use the behavioral economic concept of loss aversion. So what I mean by loss aversion is people really dislike losses and they will work extra hard so they don't have to lose something. Uh, that's a wonderful, great anecdotes too, to illustrate clawback. You know, there were two other things I wanted to make sure we talked about, and they were your admonition to harness marginal thinking and and know when to optimally quit. I love the, these two aspects of your of your of your book. So so let's start with the quitting first. And um, so quitting is kind of interesting concept because I was raised in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, and I was born in 1968. So this is essentially the heyday of a football coach called Vince Lombardi. The Super Bowl trophy in football is called the Lombardi Trophy. For all of you who don't know Vince Lombardi, that's who I'm talking about. He was a Green Bay Packers football coach. And he famously said, winners never quit and quitters never win. Look, I was raised in a blue collar family. That's how people in the Midwest are raised. And in fact, that's how people are raised all over the world. Society teaches us that quitting is repugnant. In fact, it might be, I don't know, Michael, can you think of a more repugnant word than quitting? No, really. And that's why I thought the part of your, it's so interesting when you put it into real life terms. Yeah, exactly. So society tells us don't quit. Now, that's society's problem. But there's another reason why we don't quit enough. And the other reason is our fault. And that's a very simple economic concept, but it's hard to grasp. And that concept is opportunity cost. It's something that everyone learns in Economics 101, but it's very hard to understand how do you apply the concept of opportunity cost to your life? Here's where I think you can apply it. Because what happens is people neglect their opportunity cost of time. That's just a bias that we all have. Let me give you an example to show you and, and the listeners what this means. So I've run a pretty big survey of people who have recently quit their jobs. And when I ask them, why did you quit? Point number one is my boss no longer appreciated me. And then they go to number two which is I kind of lost meaning of work. Then they go to three. I didn't get the promotion that I deserved. Then they go to four. I didn't get along with coworkers anymore. 
And they go all the way down to the 10th one, which is something like, I didn't like my cubicle or I didn't like my office. Every reason was something that went wrong in their current job. That's a mistake because we should be thinking about our opportunity set. We should be thinking about when I work here, that means I can't work somewhere else. So if my opportunity set gets better, that should also cause me to leave my job. But that's a typical reason that nobody mentions. Nobody at all, Michael. And they don't mention it because they're neglecting it. They're neglecting to understand when I'm in this job, I'm missing out on that other job. You know, when I live in this apartment, I'm missing out on the other apartment. When I'm in, in this relationship, I'm missing out on this other relationship. We don't do that because we think in a very parochial way. And this chapter rolls out those two reasons as why we don't quit enough. Now, you might be saying, well, look, this is a lot of theory and art. I thought John was about science. There is science in this chapter. And the science is a, an experiment that Steve Levin and I designed that, in, in fact, gave people a choice. People on the margin of moving cities or moving a job or moving a relationship, we had them flip a coin. And if it came up heads, they made the change. If it came up tails, they didn't. And then we tracked them for months. And what we find is if you made the change, you're a lot happier than if you didn't make the change. There's real science here. And the science shows that we don't quit enough. And I have the theoretical reasons in the chapter why. Society says it's repugnant and we make a, a personal bias. You know, you, what about marginal thinking? Let's close on marginal thinking if you don't mind, because I thought it was very fascinating. So marginal thinking is another one of those topics that we teach as a foundational piece of economic thinking, but we very rarely give the student or the reader the tools to think on the margin. So that's what this chapter is about. It's essentially about making a revolution on the margins and being a marginal thinker. I talk about my days in the White House in this chapter. And in particular, you know, we were thinking about various ways to clean up parts of America, whether it was a hazardous or a non-hazardous waste site, whether it was using scrubbers to clean up socks and knocks from energy plants. So we have a lot of different ways to um, try to have a cleaner environment. And the way that I want you to think about on the margin, here's what I was brought with. I was brought with some data that essentially said as, as follows. When we clean up a hazardous waste site in the East, we can save a bunch of lives but it costs about $2 million on average to clean up for, for an average life. Now, we could clean up hazardous waste sites in the Midwest. And when we did that, it cost on average about $3 million for the average life. And this is over, say, tens of thousands of lives in the East and in the, West, in the Midwest. EPA said, well, given that, the next tranche of dollars should go to the East Coast. 
And I said, well, let's wait a second here because that was a pretty big group of data that you're talking about, you know, tens of thousands of lives on the East Coast, tens of thousands in the Midwest. What if instead of taking that average, you thought a little bit more on the margin and you just looked at, say, the last thousand lives that you saved in the East Coast and the last thousand lives that you saved in the Midwest? And they said, well, we don't have that. But I started looking at the data and I sort of had this not uh, this John Nash policy moment. So John Nash is a famous game theorist who was, uh, won the Nobel Prize years ago for his innovations in game theory. And I started to see the marginals being very different than the averages. And what this means here is that for the last thousand people, the Midwest, those sites were a lot cheaper than the last thousand lives saved on the East Coast. And, and then I, I looked at them and said, look, if we start to do this exploration on the margin, that's the way you want to think about it, because you want to think about the next hazardous waste site, how much will we have to spend to save lives? And the best indication of that will be the last hazardous waste site that we clean up. And that exactly is the case. So we ended up moving the dollars to the Midwest and using marginal thinking whether it's in government or in the business world, it leads you to much, much more efficient decision-making and our public dollars can be stretched a lot further. Well, you know, John, I, I've taken enough of your time. I think it's a terrific read. It is not a tome. It is very approachable. The anecdotes are, are really refreshing. I want to thank you for your time today and for your work. Thanks again. Michael, thank you for having me. And I, I really do appreciate your kind words. When you write a book, it's a labor of love. And I appreciate that you love the book. It means a lot to me. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors focusing on how to make good ideas great and great ideas scale with Professor John A. List, author of The Voltage Effect. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.